You're listening to Global Conversations. Hello, everyone. My name is Paige, and you're listening to Global Conversations. This will serve as part one of a two-part series, and the two-part series will be discussing a charitable organization dedicated to popular education and the research fields of peace, sustainability, and justice. This organization is called Science for Peace. And today, I'm really excited about our guest, who is currently the president of Science for Peace and a professor of political science at the University of Toronto, as well as a fellow of the Royal Society of Canada. His professional expertise is in political economy of international development, although he currently studies the politics of climate change. And today we are welcoming Professor Richard Sandbrook to talk about Science for Peace and some of the really important work that they are currently doing. So without further ado, welcome Professor Sandbrook. Well, thank you. I'm glad to be here. Now I understand that Science for Peace takes on a lot of different roles and has a lot of ongoing projects. My first question for you is, what is the overall mission of Science for Peace and what is your role as the president? Okay, well, that's actually a very big topic. I try not to give a lecture on it. Uh, you know, Science for Peace as began in 1981. It's a registered charity and its uh, goals are to our research and um, research and, and actually uh, teaching in the areas of, of peace widely construed. So we, we conceive of peace along with sustainability as being the two, uh, two, two goals of the organization. When it began in 1981, the, uh, the organization was part of the, uh, the anti uh, War, anti-nuclear war movement, and so therefore its, its major focus is nuclear weapons. That continues to be one of the uh, main foci of science for peace. But as well, we have taken on the issue of um, overcoming the climate crisis, and in particular, the linkage between militarism and uh, climate change. And and so therefore. Uh, Having this mandate of uh, popular education and, and research, or actually I should say we, we've interpreted our mandate of uh, research and, and uh, education as being popular research and education. And the, the distinction is this, there's all kinds of primary research on any, also any topic that you can talk about in the area of, of peace and uh, climate change. Uh, many of these uh, articles are written in a very arcane academic style for us, for a very specialized audience. The role of Science for Peace is not really to contribute to this, uh, this rather arcane and, and, and uh, uh, research uh, corpus, but rather to interpret those uh, research studies and render them in a way that is accessible to people interested in the subject, we're not, uh, you know, physicists, chemists, political scientists, and so on. And, and I think that's a very important part of our mandate as well. What we focus on most, most uh, 
dramatically, I guess, is the issue of how do you get there? How do you get there? Uh, you know, so you were talking about uh, the prohibition of nuclear weapons, or you're talking about overcoming climate change. For us, the question always before us is, okay, but how do you get there? What is the way of implementing? What is the pathway that makes sense? The feasible strategy in the longer term to actually achieve those goals. So that is that is uh, what we we think of as uh, research is using the results of of um, other arcane studies, also bringing to uh, our uh, uh, the, uh, the public through our our social media and our website um, clearly written blog posts and articles on important issues to do with with war, peace, and mainly the issue of climate change and how it might be dealt with. But there are other things we've done as well, but we've decided uh, in this year to, to focus first of all on the prohibition of nuclear weapons, and then secondly, on the issue of overcoming climate change in the second term. We've had two webinars in the, uh, two linked webinars in this first term, the second one being just last night, which were on the whole, whole issue of what is going on at the global level and within Canada to um, achieve uh, the ratification and coming into force of the UN Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. Uh, and and next, next term, we're going to focus on climate change, not only in webinars in both cases, but also in terms of, of open, an open letter to the Prime Minister, which we've developed. We hope to get um, a very wide range of organizations and well-known individuals to support that open letter uh, advocating that Canada join and ratify the uh, UN treaty prohibiting nuclear weapons. So that is, uh, so, so that is the, what, what the organization is actually doing in a nutshell. Um, and more specifically, you know, what is my role as president? Well, you know, I almost, um, <laughs> I, mull I mulled over my answer because I'm, I knew you were going to ask that question. And this, it is really difficult uh, to answer because, you know, Science for Peace is a voluntary organization. We only have one um, part-time coordinator who spends about 10 hours a week on the organization. And um, everything else is done by volunteers. It doesn't really work unless somebody animates the overall operations. There has to be an animator. And the role of the president is above all to be an animator. I mean, if, if, if the president just did the formal duties of you know, officiating at, at various meetings and introducing speakers, uh, that sort of thing, uh, it, the organization would largely peter out, unfortunately. It, 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 uh, every organization needs to have one or, or more people. In my, in my case, it's not just me, by the way, who's the animator. We're talking about animating work. In the first term uh, on nuclear weapons, it was um, Rob Atchison, one member of our executive, who played the major role as head of the nuclear weapons uh, working group. So animation, so you know, it's part of it's a big part of it. Uh, for example, we are now actively involved in um, organizing the three webin three linked webinars in the second term, one each in January, February, and March on the issue of overcoming the climate crisis. And uh, there's a lot, lot of work to be done that. I'm not the only one working on it, obviously. We have other people whose job it is. But, you know, 
if it's really of interest what the president does, then um, I can give you just an example. Uh, we, the organizational committee on this uh, climate uh, crisis program, has decided that our, our our main audience should be those in their 20s and 30s, including also high school students, so teenagers as well, senior high school students, people in their 20s and 30s. So we are um, asking our younger members and interns and so on to really help us in a way to, to know how to, to appeal to this, uh, this audience. Webinars can be very stuffy, too long, people talk often too long, uh, it's kind of boring. So how can we make it uh, fresh and interesting? Uh, how do we engage people, uh, not just to give them information or ideas, but also to really make them feel as though this is an important uh, issue that is being grappled with and it's kind of fun. I want, I, we want, I mean, quite frankly, I'm sorry to go on such a long time, but what I want is to develop a webinar in January that uh, people attending will say, "Wow, that that that's that's the that's the best webinar I've ever I've ever gone to." So it's a matter it's a matter of planning every minute. It's only going to be one hour long the first one. But every minute we're planning, you know, to try and build in videos, music, as well as the uh, serious discussions and Q and A. Uh, it's, a, it's a serious subject, but it doesn't mean it to say it has to be done in a boring, tedious manner. It can be done in, a, in an entertaining, engaging manner, and that's what we're that's what we're aiming for. So uh, you'll just have to attend the first one uh, in January, the, on January the twenty-sixth, in order to to see whether we actually succeed in doing it. I think there are a lot of interesting points that you just mentioned, and one particularly, I really like the idea of creating new digestible content because maybe I'm speaking for myself, but sometimes when I try to dive into a new topic, I get overwhelmed by complex graphs and academic language that might not be super accessible to many people. So I really like the idea of creating a webinar a series and have this be able to connect with a greater audience. I am really excited to attend those personally. However, this does lead me to my next question. You mentioned a few times, how do you get there? How do you get to a larger audience? How do you get people to listen? How do you make the strides that need to be taken? I would love to hear from you and your thoughts. How do we do it? Yeah, that is, that is the issue, the strategic question that we should all be focusing on. It's not enough to say how terrible nuclear war is or how awful are the consequences of climate change. I think nearly all of us know to some degree that both situations are quite untenable, that they threaten our survival. Uh, simply to go on about this level is simply to paralyze people. Uh, so therefore you need to move from uh, scary uh, statistics to the issue of, okay, then what do we need to do? And how can it be done feasibly? It's not enough to say, what do we need to do? Because you no know, technocrats can say, oh, here's a solution. And of course, there's no idea of how you connect between that solution and the, and the lives of, of human beings and the, the nature of politics. So if you, if you take nuclear weapons, for example, which is one of our main, main focus, 
we have a we have, we have a particular strategy. It's, it's not profound or, or original. We're not working on our own, science for peace, a small organization. We only work with others in civil society. We share with other organizations the idea that the liberal government and other governments in Ottawa uh, are timid when it comes to issues of, of nuclear weapons and on issues of climate change. They're afraid of stirring up um, of, uh, strong, um, powerful interests if they go too far of alienating Alberta on, on the uh, question of, of, of carbon dioxide emissions, for example. Uh, they talk a good game, the Liberal government does on nuclear disarmament, on climate change, but the reality is that they don't do that much. If you look at the, the, the legislation just coming forward now on, on meeting uh, targets on climate change, uh, they, there's, no, there's no real accountability for what they're suggesting. There's no five-year plan for the next five years. They, they, they've let themselves off the hook yet again. On nuclear weapons, they've always, we've always, Canada had a good stance against nuclear weapons or non-nuclear power, but we haven't done anything since uh, Trudeau Sr. was around to actually promote the idea. So what, what we're doing at Science for Peace, but I, again, I stress not by ourselves, is to say that the government, unless pushed, will not do enough. They simply will not do enough. Politics as usual are important, electoral politics, who gets elected, but that's not enough. The only way things will, will get done on, on pressing issues of nuclear weapons and on climate change is with the development of a very powerful uh, grassroots movement demanding certain changes. So that's where our energies lie in working with other organizations in developing this, this much larger uh, network. For example, there, the, there's the Canada Peace Network that I'm on the coordinating committee on, which is trying to bring together all the various organizations in Canada that deal with uh, issues of war and peace, and especially nuclear weapons, in order to coordinate and strengthen our collective voice uh, in, within civil society. One, one I, if you ask me for the longer term strategy, the only thing that's going to work in, in the end to save, uh, to save humanity, if I may put it in such dramatic terms, is if we can actually forge a very powerful uh, uh, coalition among civil society groups. Which are not, and I don't just mean anti-war groups, and I don't just mean climate groups. I mean climate groups, anti-peace movements, social justice issues, uh, and racial and, and, and identity politics issues as well. But there's an increasing um, coordination among these groups. They're, all, they're, they're, they're tending towards a more unified structure. What we should do is unify that structure in order to gain the kind of um, societal voice that governments can no longer um, ignore. It's, no, it's, it's really of no use if Science for Peace sends a letter to the prime minister, which we do all the time, by the way, on various important issues, you know, suggesting this and demanding that, because all it does is get a response from somebody writing a letter in the prime minister's office. Thank you for your, your um, position, and uh, I'm sure we'll be taking this into account, which of course they're not, and that's the end of it. So that's not going to work. Uh, therefore, you can only uh, hope to, to, to achieve these goals by putting enough pressure on governments to actually bite the bullet, deal with the vested interests involved, which are often extremely powerful, and, and actually um, do the job they're supposed to do, which is to govern in the public interest. Now, I found the point that you said regarding 
a unification of these coalition groups within the global community are really the way to get anything done in the first place. So this transitions me into my next question regarding climate change. I'd like to ask you, in order to see strides towards beginning to reverse some of the damage that has been happening towards climate change, do you think a coalition group uh, or unified organization is necessary? Do you think that's the answer? I'd love to hear your thoughts on what the might, next steps might be, whether that's a multilateral effort or maybe something else entirely. Okay, well, I mean, let's, let's really be clear about the danger that confronts humankind. And I would, I would also say that, you know, we're not just talking about humankind. We're talking about, about life on the planet, about our, our fellow uh, species, who at, the, at this point are being eliminated from the earth at a very rapid rate. But one species after another is now in, in, in jeopardy. Uh, for a variety of reasons, some of which are connected with climate change and the importance changing uh, climatic conditions in certain uh, um, regions and movement of animals in the areas that are, uh, humans live and so on. It, it's it's an absolute mess. And so we, we we have a situation. Let's let's just put it very graphically. But be, before the industrial revolution, the uh, the number of parts per million of carbon was under 300, I forget exactly what it was, something like 285 or something, according to work done in the Arctic on, on Arctic ice, uh, where they can tell the carbon dioxide uh, levels on the cores. Um, the, the scientists have, have, have told us that the highest level of, of concentration, safe level, safe level of concentration is 350 parts per million. Now, most recently in, in uh, just uh, a month ago, the level recorded was 413 parts per million of carbon in the atmosphere. So the, the world has not had as high a level of, of carbon concentration for millions of years. Uh, and at that time, when it was that high, we had uh, you know, no, no Arctic, no, no ice cap. It was a very, very hot, humid world indeed. Um, so the challenge we face is not only to limit the amount of uh, the amount of carbon going into the atmosphere, uh, you know, down to zero by the latest 3050, or hopefully well before that, but also to then draw the existing carbon out of the atmosphere because you know that there's a lag between uh, the arrival of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere and and climate change. Unfortunately, carbon dioxide, once it does get in the atmosphere, stays there for a very long time um, under normal circumstances. So our, our, our task is, is major. Uh, even with the concentration we now have, we are due to for very, very rapid increases and high increases in the global temperature. Now, that, that is why people say that we are in an emergency. We are in a, in a crisis. The, 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 the words are not... Uh, um, exaggerations, uh, they're not hyperbolic, they're, they're reality. We need, a, we need change in 10 years to, to at least half the um, emissions of carbon, cut them in half in 10 years at a minimum. That can only be done through an emergency operation. Those emergency operations are not in evidence anywhere. 
the Europeans and the British, uh, British are part of the Europeans, not part of, I'll be soon part of Brexit, but uh, part, of, part of the EU. But nonetheless, uh, the, the Europeans have done better than anybody else, really setting goals and, and living up to them, including the British, uh, done a very good job, um, but not enough, even in those cases. Well, the point is that, that um, there's an enormous set of vested interests. Uh, some of the uh, energy companies, the oil companies are in fact realizing that the writing's on the wall and in fact moving heavily into uh, green energy. Uh, because obviously, as we all know, the price of, of uh, energy or electricity generated by solar power is now lower than that of uh, by oil or gas. And coal is still perhaps cheaper, but is incredibly destructive to the environment. So uh, we know we know what to do. This is this 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 is the problem. The, the problem is not that we don't know what to do about climate change. The problem is that we know what to do about climate change, but we don't do it. So when you get into the question of saying, why don't we do it? We get into the issue of politics and the issue of power structures. And that is an issue that can only really be, be dealt with, not just through rational arguments, because there are all kinds of great studies about you know, what, could, what could be done to in fact deal with it. In fact, our first webinar in January 26, uh, Danny Harvey, a climate scientist, geographer from University of Toronto is going to tell us what needs to be done to avoid catastrophe. You know, it's known what needs to be done. He says, this is the minimum that needs to be done by a certain time for us to keep the global warming below, not, not below, not at 1.5 degrees, which is recommended. He doesn't think that even two degrees of global warming is now feasible, but at least below a catastrophic three degrees, uh, which is where we're, we're heading given present trajectories to hold it, you know, may, maybe closer to two degrees uh, overall increase. We're now at 1.1 degree uh, Celsius, and uh, it's likely to go above two degrees, uh, moving up very quickly now, you know, um, over the years. Uh, so we know what to do. We don't do it. But how do you get, how do you get the system to do it? Only by a great sense of urgency. How do they develop the urgency? Not by telling people this is a terrible situation we're in and pulling our hair, but rather by organization, by widespread organization. And, and this, this is the importance of the New Green Deal, whatever it might be called, the just transition. The New Green Deal and the just transition is basically a way of, or, of, of creating coalitions in civil society that involve not only climate, climate action groups and environmental action groups more generally, but also uh, other groups, economic justice movements, and hopefully the uh, racial and ethnic and indigenous justice movements, economic uh, and the, the peace movement all together behind a kind of program, the Green New Deal, which involves not only ecological survival, but also a just transition in the sense that the costs of the transition are, are equalized. And in fact, we develop a, a better life through, through um, becoming carbon frugal over the next 20 years. So that, that, that's the overall vision of how we need, I think, need to go about. And in that vision, the role of science for peace is obviously very small. And we just do our best to help along the way, but we can't, uh, you know, we're, not, we're, we're not saving the world ourselves, that's for sure. Thank you so much, Professor Sambrook. And I, I've really enjoyed having you on the show and I've 
enjoyed listening to your thoughts on where you see change coming from in the world and how um, Science for Peace essentially is trying to make the connections necessary and build this group of individuals that are committed to making change and seeking better conditions for the world that we live in. Um, I'm really excited about this topic and as I've said I've really enjoyed having you on the show. I, um, I'm going to link all Science for Peace's social media below so if anyone has any further questions or wants to learn a little bit more about Science for Peace I really encourage you to go check out their uh, internet presence and um, find the answers you're looking for. Uh, before we wrap up, Professor Sandberg, is there anything else you might want to add or a message for any listeners? If you have any of you out there have uh, know of any listservs that serve, um, that go to uh, younger people, please pass those on to Science for Peace because we need to. The whole problem we have is 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 how to to get our message out to the largest audience so they can attend. We we, we have a capacity for five hundred people at these webinars. We would really like to get up to at least 300 people in each of them. To do that, we need to go beyond social media and to actually listservs to, to, to bring the message in. So please send listservs that might be relevant to sfp at physics.utoronto.ca. That's all. Thank you. I think that's a really interesting point. And thank you so much. I've really enjoyed um, engaging in conversation with you and hearing your thoughts on where you see change coming from and what steps you believe need to be taken. Uh, I feel like I've really gained a much deeper understanding of Science for Peace and its mission. I, uh, yeah, I can't thank you enough for taking your time today to talk to me. I also really encourage any listeners to go check out Science for Peace online or on their Instagram or Twitter pages. Uh, if you have any questions, send them there, and I'm sure the team would be more than happy to engage and um, potentially set you up with a webinar that might be d discussing a similar topic. Um, thanks again so much, Professor Sandbrook. Okay, thank you for asking and thank you to everyone who is listening. This is Global Conversations, and I hope you tune into the second part of this series, where we're going to be talking to two MGA1 students who are on the executive team for Science for Peace at the U of T campus. They're both going to be talking about their interests in global security and their innovative strategies to get people involved with the club on campus. Thank you so much and have a great day everyone.